edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Chrysell, and Diane Duver and I, your hosts, every week right here on AM 1290, repeated at 11, and Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and at Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. And we, our guest today is Kelly Doria, who is a veterinarian and she all pause house calls where um, as her business. So um, we are excited to hear from Kelly. And if, uh, how is your day going? Neil? Well, first of all, um, it was great that it rained so much last night. We are almost to a normal year. So even though we're all freaked out about the virus, at least the rain is cooperating. So that's that's good news. Um, and the second thing is I got uh, an article here for our first article that is really funny. And it wasn't meant to be funny, but it really is funny. And it's entitled... How to Survive a Bear Market, and it's by the intelligent investors Jason Swag, and it says the following. He's playing playing a play on words. Bear market is by saying investors can survive a bear market the same way hikers survive an encounter with a bear. Remain calm and don't make sudden moves. Make yourself look as large as possible by. In this case, remembering that you own bonds besides stocks, and so the decline in the stock market is not all of your assets. And the second thing he says is uh, that, that is a, uh, a, a statement from the Park Services, which, appear, which also applies to bear markets, is uh, if a bear is stationary, move away slowly sideways. This always allows you to keep an eye on the bear and avoid tripping. Do not run, but if the bear follows you, stop and hold your ground. And so what they're saying is don't make any sudden moves like selling everything. Try to be calm. Uh, don't look straight at the disastrous stock market and try to be rational. So um, just like you could probably survive a bear attack, you could probably survive this bear market. Um, well, and I, think, I always say this is a great time to really Look at your allocation. How much stock to bonds do you have? How much cash do you normally keep on hand? And if you have all that in line, so if you have a very large emergency reserve and you have a, an allocation that has bonds and stocks in it to the right amount that it makes you feel comfortable, you really don't have anything to worry about in this market. Well, we're going to cut our article short today because you introduced uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Kelly Doria as a veterinarian. She is the premier veterinarian in town. And we're going to talk about, among other things, how you can deal with your pet given the coronavirus. Uh, you're listening to AM 1290 KZSB Money Talk, and we'll be right back. Back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. 
And if you're just joining us, we have Kelly Doria, a doctor of veterinarian medicine and the owner of All Paws House Calls with us today. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Hi, Diane. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here with us. So, you know, with all that's going on in the news today, there's um, really a lot of concern about this COVID, vi COVID virus and how it's affecting pets and whether or not humans can catch this from um, their animals. Do you, could you help um, dispel some of the myths and, and tell us what we, what we should know? I'd be happy to. Um, and I have been asked this several times with other concerned individuals about their pets. Um, basically, just a little background information, coronaviruses as a group have been around for a long time. Um, as we know them, they've caused the common cold or some versions of the common cold in, in humans, but dogs and cats can get them and they present as either intestinal or respiratory problems. At this time, there's no evidence that the novel coronavirus, the one that's causing COVID-19 infections and disease in humans, can cause disease in dogs. There was a recent case that was identified of a cat in Belgium that had diarrhea and difficulty breathing, where the virus was found in its stool. However, just so everyone knows, dogs and cats are considered an end host. In other words, the virus does not replicate to the point of infection where they can spread it to humans um, because it just doesn't replicate in the, in the dog and the cat. So in other words, dogs and cats, if they get the virus from people, and that is the human to animal transmission is extremely rare, but it is a dead end for the virus. So when I walk my dogs, I can't uh, stop people from petting them. And that's probably because they're so cute, but is there any danger that if they have the virus, they can leave the virus germs on my dog's coat and I would pick it up? Kind of like uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Kind of like poison oak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poison oak's a fun one, isn't it? Um, no, actually, um, because their fur is fiber, it binds or effectively traps the virus in their fur. You would have to be around someone who literally coughs into their hand, takes their hand, pets your, your dog. You directly pet over the site where the virus was placed on your dog's fur and then touch your face. Um, the likelihood of you contacting a virus from your pet fur that was transmitted by an infected individual is exceedingly, I mean, I don't even think it's possible, but it's exceedingly low. Um, and anyone who's concerned can always, of course, pay their pet. And uh, if they choose to pay their cat, that is a choice that will endanger their life all on another level. So, wait, what do you mean by that? I mean that cats trying to pay the cat is is only for the brave of heart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> but is that something that you'd recommend for somebody like? Neil, who's a germaphobe to begin with, he's in the park, somebody pets his dog, should he immediately bathe his pet to ease all fear that he may be tra uh, trans transmitting the virus in some way? So for someone who is, is exceedingly concerned about the potential for getting virus in that manner, um, and when we, when we talk about viruses being transmitted from individuals who are not infected, they're actually known as fomites. So, you know, whether it's clothing or whether in this case fur of an animal, um, you can take the precaution and it's really for your own peace of mind. But you can take the precaution of bathing your pet. 
um, minimally maybe wiping them down with a cloth that's that's with warm soapy water and then wipe it down again with a wet one but a full bath would decidedly put everyone's minds at ease is it necessary no i don't think so do i bathe my pets when strangers pet them no i don't so so uh i guess it's okay to sleep with them like i do under the blankets that's perfectly normal then she, she's I not a psychiatrist. you. Exactly. <laughs> this, is, this is not in my pay grade. Yeah, so I'm afraid to pet my dog when someone pets them, but then I put the dog under my blanket. So th that's, a, that's something I should really be talking to my therapist about, correct? Uh, yes. Yes, I'll answer that for you. <laughs> so, so, Kelly, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you go to veterinarian school? Um, I went to veterinary school at UC Davis. Um, here in California. Uh, UC Davis is um, uh, actually considered the number one vet school in the world. They've gotten that um, uh, accolade recently uh, again. Um, I've been practicing for 26 years now and um, have wandered down to the Central Coast, oh, about 10 years ago. So, yeah. so Kelly, how, how come whenever I go into a, a, a veterinary hospital, almost all of the vets are women? and young women, is is there some reason that women become, or is it just my observation that's not really uh, what takes place over the whole country? Is it, is it therefore, you know, an anomaly or are pe more, more females uh, than males becoming vets? Um, no, it's, it is a, an accurate observation in so much as there has been um, a change in the gender uh, representation, if you will, um, for veterinarians, um, there we now, uh, as a gender, are not quite, but close to 50% of all practicing veterinarians. The majority of uh, new veterinarians or veterinary students are, is female. Um, in my graduating class 26 years ago, I would say that probably the men were closer to 15% of the, the graduating class. So women have been taking over the profession. Um, men don't enter it as frequently as they used to. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, the finances. It's just not as high of a paying job as, say, the human counterpart. And did you always want to be a vet? Pretty much. I wanted to go into medicine um, at a young age and uh, decided at around... 13 that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And now, did you have to go into a special, um, like, subsection to focus on dogs and cats? It, at the time that I was um, uh, matriculating in vet school, we basically learn everything. Um, in our final year, we can either continue to know about everyone, and so, in other words, do both large and small animal, or we could do what was called tracking. And that would be to focus on any in a particular, um, I won't want to say specialty, but perhaps just species. In some cases, some people went strictly equine, some food animal. And in my case, I went companion animal or dog and cat. And so um, tell us what, what, what types of different things do you do when you track on just um, uh, pet animals? Well, of course, with dogs and cats, I'm, I no longer deal with um, with horses or cows or anybody like that. And so we deal mainly with with the companion or 
in many cases, the family member. And in that regard, we're dealing with um, a caregiver who looks at this animal as, as truly a family member and therefore all the the um, emotional attachments associated with that, which you know we support in every way. Um, with regards to health issues, of course, they are very close with their with their owners, uh, caregivers, and so we always, of course, look for what would be um, of concern to that health to that particular person. In other words, their caregiver um, for the health of the animal, the health of the person too. Right. Your profession is a lot like a pediatrician where you're you're talking to the owner, but you're treating the smaller, quote unquote, person. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And before the break, we were talking about uh, how a veterinarian needs to talk to the patient and the owner. And I remember years ago, I had a very bad experience uh, where um, the vet did not listen to me and um, my dog died because he didn't take seriously the idea that my dog didn't take anesthesia well and put him in a cage before the operating and after the anesthesia was given and he apologized profusely. And I spoke to one of the professors I knew at, at Cornell Veterinary School and told him the story. And he said, you know, just like with doctors, you know, vets are young and need to understand that they have to listen to their patients. And that's true for medical doctors as well. But I guess it's particularly difficult with uh, your business, Kelly, because you've got to look at the animal, look at the patient, and then try to discern from the owner what they notice and make sure that it's consistent. Yeah, I would have to say that as a veterinarian, we have to have very acute um, sense of observation, ability to really sift through all the information we get both from um, the owner and the pet. So when we listen to history, we've got to sort through what's prudent or pertinent to the, to the case and also what the animal's telling us on a nonverbal level, both on physical exam or perhaps their body posture, um, you know, things that would tell us more of what's going on from just what the owner's um, observing too. There's there's something that many people say is anthropomorphism, where we will attribute um, human characteristics to animals, and so many times owners will uh, interpret the animal's behavior through what their feelings would be. So as a veterinarian, we've got to not only listen to what they're saying, because they live with them. They know them better than anyone. And in veterinary medicine, the care of my patients is really teamwork between myself the owner and the patient. So all that has to be weighed and really try to discern what the true cause of the problem is with with all that information. So in the last segment, um, I think you made pretty clear that a pet cannot 
uh, transmit the COVID-19 virus to their owners or any other human species as the animal is a dead end for the virus to continue to replicate. That said, what the news reports are coming out is that this virus did spread from a bat. So does that make this virus um, different than other COVID or uh, yeah, other COVID or other coronavirus families? So it's all it's all in the coronavirus family per se. Uh, this is a novel coronavirus. Uh, I think they're still trying to research the actual um, genetic material and find out precisely um, the contributions. I believe, my understanding was it wasn't just strictly a bat, but it may have been a blend of a, of a bat and a civet or cat type uh, coronavirus that blended together and became infectious to humans. And at this point, the information that we have for this particular version of the virus is that it is a dead end in, in cats and dogs. But that is not to say that it can't mutate and perhaps at one point become a two-way street. So right now there's a shortage of medical professionals to deal with uh, the virus in humans. Has there been any talk of calling up the veterinary profession to help out with humans? Because you do have medical training. Yeah, I actually have heard that in other states. Um, it might be Ohio or Illinois that have actually enlisted uh, the veterinary uh, profession community to to join ranks um, with their human counterparts to help lend a hand. Um, and I do know that uh, Governor Newsom has requested a health care army, if you will, of volunteers. And, and I think last I heard was 25,000 people have uh, volunteered for that, uh, the dentists, et cetera, EMTs. Um, but I haven't heard him actually call up veterinarians particularly. And, um, you know, I've considered it. If that's something that, that they do need our help for, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I would be able to help, but I'd be willing to help. Thank you for that, Kelly. So so tell us a little bit about the medical training. What, what does going to veterinarian school look like and how does it differ from going to a, a, medis a medical, a human medical um, school? Well, that's a good question. I've never been through a human medical school, so um, I can't exactly speak to that. I can only tell you that in, in veterinary medicine, we learn, of course, all the basic, you know, anatomy, physiology, virology, microbiology, all the things that can affect all the different species. So instead of learning about just one species, as humans do, we learn, you know, several different species. Um, food animal, um, exotics, and of course, dogs and cats, companion animal, pocket pets, etc. So we, we learn a lot about different animals. And then after the first couple of years, we move into clinics and we work with them on a, on a basis where we're doing um, exams under the guidance of other veterinarians um, and learn how to interact with the owners and, and actually make diagnoses, et cetera. And the fourth year, we do our final clinical rotations through every different department and learn anesthesia, surgery, dentistry, radiology, dermatology, oncology, I mean, ophthalmology. We, we, we learn every specialty out there. So oftentimes people will refer to the veterinary general practitioners, the Swiss army knife of, of the medical profession. 
so so in veterinary medicine that the vet is also the anesthesiologist so there isn't a different person that just specializes in anesthesiology we can specialize in any field of veterinary medicine there are board certified veterinary anesthesiologists dermatologists cardiologists radiologists all of those but as a general practitioner we have learned all those things to be able to provide those services those specialties in our clinic that said, the, the board-certified individuals are much more skilled in their realm of education, such as the internal medicine specialists. They know their area very, very well. So when we are faced with a, a case that just requires a bigger brain, we will send them off to the specialists, and they'll be able to hopefully um, identify what their problem is. Now, you have two kinds of practices. You're unique in that you are associated with a hospital, a Santa Barbara uh, veterinary hospital, and you also have your own uh, practice, um, All Pause, uh, uh, which is a traveling service. So you give your clients uh, the opportunity to have personalized homes visits, and when needed, you have the uh, facilities of a uh, first-class um, hospital. Uh, it, it, that's sort of unique, isn't it? To, to have the access to a brick-and-mortar uh, and also house call practice has been a really, um, a really rewarding blend for me. Um, having practiced 26 years and, and um, the majority of that in a brick-and-mortar facility where we do have the clinic where people come into, um, there's limitations to what you can, um, the, I would say the relationship you can develop with a client and the pet. Um, having a house call practice, I think, gives me the opportunity to not only see the environment the animal's in, which oftentimes can provide clues to what may be a problem. We can identify that the situation a little bit more clearly, especially if it's behavioral, um, what might be going on. So being in the home, we can, we can also bond with the client a little bit better, have a lot more of a, uh, a quiet, comfortable, uh, you know, exam and interaction. So the pet is more at ease. However, of course, there's, there's limitations to what I can provide in the home. And that's where the brick and mortar and thankfully Santa Barbara Pet Hospital has allowed me um, to provide is that bringing my pets or my pet patients into their clinic and getting things such as radiology, uh, dentistry, anesthesia for surgeries, um, or even hospitalization for those pets that need it has been really beneficial. And how are you dealing with uh, the uh, traveling business when we have a uh, the distance social distancing? Do you still go into people's homes? No, I've, I've had to modify this uh, as much as I want to continue to help provide my services. Um, I have actually informed my clientele that I will arrive gloved up, masked up with my own PPE, um, but I will only see pets out in the open air, in the yard. Um, this is to provide protection for my clients and the clients that I will see afterwards because I, the amount of viral load will be higher in a building that will be out in the open air. So if there's any chance of transmission, I want to be sure that I minimize uh, the chance of becoming, as I mentioned earlier, a fomite and carrying that not only to my own home, but to other homes. You're listening to Money Talk on the Santa Barbara News Press radio station. We'll be right back. 
to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So Kelly, um, given that you're still making house calls, even if they're in the yard house calls, um, does that mean that veterinarian service is considered an essential service under our current lockdown environment? Yes, it actually is. And on many levels, um, veterinarians are as much a part of the public health um, surveillance um, army, if you will. Uh, we are, many of us are accredited to be on the outlook for any um, potential disease, foreign disease, um, or, you know, um, our, our local diseases, if you will, uh, because of the possible transmission to not only to humans, but to livestock, um, flocks, et cetera. Um, so things such as Newcastle's disease was something that came up not too long ago, um, a lot of it down in uh, the LA area. Um, then we also have had a lot more leptospirosis cases, a disease that dogs get that can actually be transmitted to humans. So in many ways, veterinary medicine is essential to, to humans' public health as well as the animals. And it is actually spurred on a, a one health world type of, uh, of program that many human and veterinarians have tried to um, group together to address. But yes, so we, we are considered essential. But on a, a more personal note, we're, we're essential because I think caring for animals, for the pets, um, it really does help people maintain a, a sense of wellness too. Our pets are very close to us, and if we are um, live alone and our, our animals are our only companions at a time where we're having to shelter in place, if anything happens to that companion, this could really devastate the individual who's caring for them. So keeping them healthy is just as much of a way of keeping others healthy too. Now, does given that veterinarian medicine is considered an essential service, does that mean that your um, brick and mortar clinic is still opened as well? Yeah, we are definitely open. Um, but we have instigated our, or instituted um, the AVMA guidelines, the American Veterinary Medical Association guidelines for the shelter in place, which dictates that we do try to minimize contact with the owners, the humans, um, the two leggeds, as some would say, uh, by actually restricting access to the inside of the clinic to only personnel, veterinarians, and people who work with us and support us. Um, so in that regard, when someone comes to the clinic with their pet to be seen, they stay in their car, they contact us by phone and um, announce their arrival and give us a history. And then a PP, if you will, um, individual. So in other words, someone's gloved up, masked up, and has appropriate uh, outerwear will go and collect the pet. And we bring them inside and we do our full exam. And, and then we, as the veterinarians, will go out and keeping our six-foot distance, we'll um, tell them what we found, what tests have indicated or medications, et cetera, that we, we recommend to, to address the, their concerns. And um, it's been interesting and challenging. I'm, I'm not used to really interacting with my clientele on such a uh, distance, if you will. And oftentimes when I've gone up to the door, I almost feel like asking them if they'd like to have fries with that. But um, we've, uh, we've been able to manage so far. And I, I think everyone's been really good sports about the, the new guidelines. Does, um, uh, 
the, do veterinarians have the same problem getting protective gear as uh, medical doctors, or uh, is there available masks and, and other kinds of uh, coverage? Actually, no. I mean, in so much as um, we normally have masks and gloves, et cetera, um, our, our uh, surgical gowns and all these things are sourced from the same sources as the, our human counterparts. And like everyone else, they're becoming extremely scarce. Um, they're being allocated, um, parsed out from, from our vendors on a very small lot basis. And um, we're, we were brainstorming just the other day how to create our own fabric masks that we can perhaps make a little bit more protective um, all around. And so we're, we're learning to sew. So have you, um, have you changed your protocol with how you, you wear the protective personal equipment? Like I know my sister, who's an emergency department nurse, had, they used to use just you know one mask with every patient. Now they're wearing it for their full shift. Has, have you had to employ changes like that into your policies? We are, we are trying to be very conservative with our masks. The gloves are a little more challenging. They don't hold up to wear and tear for too long. And often, of course, our patients are, are um, dirty enough that they have to be discarded. But with regards to our exposure versus your sister's exposure, and I thank her for her help in all this too, um, we are not exposed at the level that she is. So the viral load that we potentially could get is exceedingly lower than what she could potentially get. So we actually are keeping masks for several days and trying to conserve them that way. Um, things that we're looking into, and I know the CDC is looking into it, is how to re-sterilize. Um, there's been some, some questions of whether using UV light is uh, an acceptable way of, of trying to kill the virus. And so putting them out in sunshine and rotating through masks so they're not used on a, the same one used on a daily basis. But yes, definitely trying to conserve as we're, we're possible. And now, you I, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. The, the economics of the business um, must have changed also. Everyone's business, particularly small businesses, have had struggles the last month and probably will continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, how has the business been? Is it is there been a, a drop off? Has it been significant? Has it been modest? At this point, um, it definitely um, has has dropped off somewhat. Um, it's not my practice; I don't own it, so I couldn't tell you exactly how it would compare to say last year. But just on a day to day basis, the whole function of seeing a patient with these guidelines in place is time-consuming. So we aren't able to actually see the number of patients that we used to be able to see. And so that, by design, is going to cause um, the income to decrease. Additionally, there are other sources of income for many veterinary practices. Boarding is um, where the animals will stay um, while their owner's on vacation. Um, it's been something that we've completely shut down because they can't come and go like that. So the number of cases that we can see, the number of procedures that we can do has dramatically reduced, some of them by um, AVMA guidelines and some of them by just sheer function of what we can accomplish um, given the, the types of restrictions we have now. And continuing with the business aspect, is, um, 
it, the pay system for, for, for those veterinarians that work in brick and mortar uh, hospitals, um, how do they get, do they get paid a straight salary or do they get a percentage of each visit? And how does that affect the individual practitioner? Well, that's an excellent question, uh, and that's kind of an individualized situation. Uh, some some clinics would want their uh, veterinarians on what's called production or base plus production, which means they get a guaranteed base salary plus a percentage of what um, they bring in. Um, it's kind of a, I guess it's considered a motivator, and some practices have veterinarians who they're strictly on salary. So it doesn't matter how many patients they see, they, they get a set amount of money. So I think it's definitely going to impact um, the incomes of many veterinarians on different levels. Now, with your um, house call business, the all-cause house calls, um, ha have you seen a drop-off in that, or has that stayed relatively consistent? It, it definitely as least with April has um, diminished the amount of appointments. Um, although, interestingly enough, I've had calls for appointments because of the COVID-19 infection out there. They don't want to come anywhere near the clinic. Um, I had a client who is a cancer survivor who requested that I come out. And we both met out on the back patio, gloved up, masked up, um, him in a respirator, me with all my gear to try to minimize any potential transmission to see his pet. So, so it's interesting and, and it's just um, a new challenge all around. Oh, well, that's how, you know, I, I, I mask and, and put my gown on too now. Whenever I go into the dining room to have dinner with my wife, I don't know if that's excessive, but I, I think it's really important. Anyway, Stop wasting masks. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we're speaking with um, Kelly Dora, who's Doria. A Doria, who's a doctor of veterinarian medicine. She also owns a business called All Paws House Calls. And during this time of social distancing, um, are you finding that when you go to new clients for house calls, the the animals are more protective because you're seeing them on their turf, so to speak, or is it all the same? Prior to um, having to mask up and glove up, I, I, I didn't feel that there were any differences between my greeting a patient in their own environment versus my greeting a patient in the clinic. Sometimes just coming into a clinic, an animal gets cues, many chemical cues, different smells, et cetera, that can kind of tell them what went on before. And of course, previous experiences will color how they react while in the clinic. Um, so sometimes they're more on guard or more reticent in the clinic than in their own home. So I will find that going into the home, the animal's much more comfortable and uh, much more amenable to me handling them. Now, 
having someone come at you who's got gloves on, a mask on, and you can't really see their face. And animals spend a lot of time reading faces to know what to expect. I find may be a little off-putting. Just because they so, can't see. So, so um, uh, I have to divulge that uh, Dr. Doria has been our family vet for years and years, and she's clearly the best vet in, in town. There's no question about it. Um, in this period, are you willing to take on new patients? And if so, how do people get in touch with you? So I have been accepting new clients um, with the the consideration that there are restrictions to what I can provide with regards to only being able to see them outside. Um, and uh, they, people have been understandable about that. Um, I am reached by phone. They can call and make an appointment. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just, it's on a case-by-case -case basis what their needs are. I do try to um, discern what their concerns are ahead of time to see if I'm best suited for them. In other words, will a house call provide them with the best care or would they be better suited to come into uh, a, a brick and mortar facility or even um, maybe more advanced to um, an emergency clinic, um, a specialty clinic. So, um, so reaching me by phone, and I don't know, I don't want to do a shameless plug if that's okay, but um, yeah, is the best way to get a hold of me. And, and what's how does and what's your website and what's your telephone number? Um, my phone number is 805-453-3825. And I, I hate to say it, but I don't have a, a website that's up right now. Well, I don't have a website either, so we're, we're, that's, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better now. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, you know, thank you so much, Kelly, for being here with us today. And under these um, circumstances, I know that time time um, is is taken away from your family and 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 the, your patients. And so we really do appreciate you coming on air to tell us and really dispel the myths about animals being carriers of this um, of this very scary virus. Well, I appreciate you having me, and um, thank you for for taking the time to talk with me. And, you know, one of the things I should say in this in our, in our last minute is that there really is a discernible difference, mask or no mask, when you uh, have your veterinarian come to your home. Uh, my dogs are completely freaked out whenever they go to the vet uh, uh, brick and mortar. And they, they forget when, when Kelly comes, they wag their tail as if they're going to get a treat and they'll get an injection. And that's fine because they know they're going to get a biscuit. Uh, which shows you what short-term memory uh, issues uh, can do. Anyway, thanks again, Kelly. Thanks for being here. Um, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you next week.
that? Me, down here. Ugh, what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. <laughs> juice, Mom. Juice, juice, juice. Mommy, why are we going to the store? Mom, Mom I want Mommy. juice. Mom, juice, juice, juice. Mommy, juice, juice, juice. Mom. Your child will have different needs at different stages of life, and that includes the car seat. That's right, the car seat. A car seat isn't one size fits all. You have to have the right seat based on your child's age, weight, and height. See, car crashes are a leading killer of children ages 1 to 13. But there's a website that gives you all the information you need. Safercar.gov slash the right seat. You'll find out about types of seats, when to have a seat rear-facing, when to switch it to forward-facing, when it's time for a booster seat, and when it's time for your child to ride in the back seat with a seatbelt. Protect your child's future at every stage of life. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat. That's safercar.gov slash the right seat. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Um, hello, it's me. The designer jeans in your closet. The back of your closet. What am I doing here? Would you keep caviar in the back of your fridge with the ketchup and old milk? Yeah, I don't think so. So what happened to us? I mean, have you seen my label? I used to summer in the Hamptons, and now I'm stuck behind a pair of sweats. Sure, I never really fit you quite right, and one of my pockets is so small you can't even squeeze your hand into it. But it's all about the look, and I look good. I need to get back out on the scene so I can be seen. You know, going to fancy parties, getting expensive iced coffees, Sunday fun days, okay? So take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. I want to thank my mommy for loving me so much, for taking me out to the park, for reading me books, for taking me to the doctor when I broke my foot in ballet rehearsal, for leaving me alone when I wanted to be alone. And And now... As a grown-up, I'm thankful for being able to take care of you, my dear mom, for having the chance to take you to the park, for reading you those books we enjoy so much, for being able to take you to your therapies after you twisted your ankle, for understanding that sometimes you simply want to be alone. Roles change without us noticing. And in your new role, we help you help. Visit aarp.org caregiving to get practical health and wellness tips to provide even better care for your loved one. Remember, visit aarp.org caregiving. AARP, we help you help. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. 
To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move is called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mind. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. If it's happening now, you'll hear it first, right here at KZSB AM 1290, the Santa Barbara News Press Radio Station. 